Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is January the 4th, 2022, and this is episode 3008 of the Survival Podcast, and it is called Baker Creek Seeds is my crack dealer. You see, every year I say... I'm just going to grow 10 varieties of things that we know do well and that we use a lot of, like my granddad did. And I'm just going to do that and make it easy this year. And then catalogs come, and chief among them that get me to buy things, Baker Creek. And this year I found a ton of stuff I want to share with you, so that's what we're going to do. We'll be running that as a live stream. So if you listen to this and you want to like see any of the stuff we're talking about, I did a pretty good kind of slideshow along with this when I did the video version of it. It's available on the YouTube channel and the Odyssey channel and anywhere else that it remains after I live stream it. Anyway, um, before we get into that, though, let's go ahead and remind you about our uh, sponsors of the day today. They do a lot to help make sure that uh, this show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today is ButcherBox. Uh, ButcherBox came on my radar about four years ago. They came to me and asked me uh, if, if we could talk about uh, setting up a relationship with each other. And I was skeptical. I really was. I'm glad that I, I, I put my skepticism aside long enough to deal with them. Let's send you a box of meat, and then you can decide from there. So when they did, I said, okay, let's talk, you know. And uh, I am so impressed with Butcher Box as a sponsor that I'm going to tell you something. I've never taken a dollar from them. No, I don't take money from Butcher Box, even though they're a paid sponsor. They pay me in meat. I get a great big box of meat every month as my payment for sponsorship from ButcherBox, and I'm happy to do it. Uh, barter is better in many ways when you can do that. It works out perfectly, and I'm telling you, a lot of you guys told me they were really good to have as a supplier during like the onset of COVID when, when supplies got short. Uh, they stopped taking new customers during that period, but those of us who were customers, we were able to fill our boxes up, add extra stuff, had no problem during that period, uh, partly because we're preppers, but also partly because of ButcherBox. It's grass-fed beef, pastured pork, pastured poultry. Check them out today, butcherbox.com. And if you're an MSB member, you get $10 off every box every month forever. That's 120 bucks a year in discounts on your membership if you're an MSB member alone. Uh, and there's been a lot of times I've been able to get special deals that are only supposed to be for new customers and get it done for you guys. Not all the time, but a lot of you guys have kind of loaded up. Uh, the last thing I loaded up on, it was 99 bucks and flank steak for life. About a two-pound chunk of flank steak for life for a hundred bucks. Yeah, uh, I've got lifetime wings. I got lifetime ground beef. Yeah, start stacking that stuff with Butcher Box. It's awesome. Next up today, you know, somebody who would appreciate the value of being able to do something like that. Understand, it's more money today, but less money for life would be John Pugliano with the Wealth Studying Podcast. John is an amazing investment analyst. 
and an investment manager. And you really, if you haven't, if you're new to the show, you just found us recently, you haven't really heard from John, you need to check out his podcast. It's at wealthsteading.com, the Wealthsteading podcast. You need to check out what he does as an investment manager as well. He's an amazing guy. He's been a huge servant to this community. Not only is he part of the expert council, he's been part of TSP since I believe it was 2011 when I met him in Utah. He has come to almost every workshop we've ever done, except when he was sick one time because he didn't want to make anybody else sick. Uh, just an amazing switched-on individual, uh, also very switched-on to trends like automation, etc. Like from his book, you know, The Robots Are Coming. That, that he was talking about that well before anybody else was. Now it's like everybody knows. Check him out today at wealthsteading.com. With that, let's kind of dig on into this and... Here we go with a live stream on YouTube. Remember, if you want to catch live streams like this, get on the Telegram channel. That's the best way to always know. Whenever I'm going to start a live stream, I always put an announcement out on the Telegram channel. Well, hey there, folks. We are live with the Tuesday episode of the Survival Podcast. For those that follow the podcast, not just the videos, this is episode 3008. And uh, we're going to talk today about what we're going to grow this year. And I will admit it. I'm an addict. I'm addicted to seeds. And it's been a monkey on my back for a long time. For decades, I have tried to pare down versus do more with my annual seed starting and seed selection and stuff like that. I shouldn't be an addict. right? I grew up in a very reasonable homesteader family. Some other crazy problems, but over-selection of seeds was not one of them. My grandfather grew a garden, and it was pretty much the same garden every year, and I had my own little row of all the crazy stuff that I could pick out wanted to grow back then. There wasn't as much to select from back in the 80s. Every year we got two catalogs. They were pretty plain Jane and boring. They were only you know, little pamphlet-sized ones. One came from a company called Berkey, uh, Burpee, and the other one came from Parks. And the old man, he wasn't tempted by them at all. They didn't have great photography or anything like that, and, and we grew food so that we could feed ourselves. I mean, that's what we did. That's what Grandpa did. Grandpa wasn't a seed addict. He had his own addictions, but seeds were not one of them. In fact, he he, he probably kept getting those catalogs from Burpee and Parks. He was hoping he'd, he'd order some, and then every once in a while I'd order a few, so they thought maybe they'd get a big order out of them. They never really did because he saved all his seeds, and he had selected for his climate type, and we, we grew the things that my grandmother preserved or that we ate right away because that made sense for us. But then I grew up and started growing my own gardens, and I still do that. I still grow the things that grow well, but I'm always experimenting. But every year I say to myself, this year, this year will be different. This year I will get the seed addiction monkey off my back. This year I am only going to do... 10 to 12 things that do well for us that we use, just like Grandpa did. And quote a famous movie, just when I think I'm out, they pull me back in. And who does it? The catalogs. The catalogs. But there is none that is more of a crack dealer than Baker Creek, i.e. rareseeds.com. And I don't know what Jerry Gettle pays the dude that does the photography for these catalogs, but he needs to give him a bonus or a raise or something because that catalog is like a, a, a book you put on a coffee table for people to look at. 
It is gorgeous, and it gets you every time. And I want to point out, I spread my seed orders around. Uh, I'm, an, I'm an open opportunity addict. Uh, we have some really great uh, seed suppliers that, that do discounts for my members program. Unfortunately, Gettle's not one of them. So I need to tell that boy. He needs to come out and give us a discount. I've asked a couple times, never got an answer. Um, but it's an incredible book, and it, it got me this year again. I was going to do it. I was going to do it this year. It was going to be my year to just take the stuff that I have, the seeds that I've saved, the few things I might have to pick up here and there, and just do that. But no. It was, I think, December 23rd, a couple days before Christmas. Dorothy said, some new stuff coming in the mail for you. Do you want these magazines? She calls catalogs magazines. And I picked that one up, and on the cover of that was those sunflowers. And all I could say was, damn it. I know I'm going to do it again. So today's show, we're going to go through 15 items that I already ordered. I've learned my lesson with this podcast. So I'll, I'll talk about this subject. You're going to hear at least one item this year that you've heard of before from me that I've never grown because I talk about it, then I go to order it. It's always like perpetually sold out. In fact, that's going to be the first one. But for those watching the video, I always say that you know the, the, there's links and resources and what have you. Well, I wanted to show you what that looks like if you've never been to the website before, if you're a perpetual YouTube watcher. And that's not a good one. Let's try this one. That's better. All right, so I have show notes all the time. And in this case, I have like a bazillion tabs open, and hopefully that won't be a, a technical problem for us. But this is a typical post on the website. That's why I always say go by and check it out. You can get the audio version of the podcast so you can get all the resources. And so that we didn't have to sit here and wait for them to load. I'm going to start talking right now about the plants that I want to grow this year and why I've selected them. This one here is Chinese pink celery. And if you're thinking, I've heard Jack talk about it on the podcast before and say he's going to grow it before, you're right. The problem is that every time I've talked about it, and I've waited more than a couple hours to go order it, this must be a really low seed quantity that they keep in reserve of this thing or something. I've found this to be perpetually sold out. I've grown a lot of their white Chinese celery, and I really like it. But for those that can see the pictures, if you look at this, it is absolutely a gorgeous plant. And it looks to me like another one of these plants that we can grow in the HOAs, where the blue hairs and the Karens complain about gardens because it's very much an ornamental that's also inedible. And I've really never seen anything quite like it until this one's come around. And I'm going to grow this mainly because I love to grow celery. And for years and years, I've had an issue with growing celery in that I've been unable to grow it because I've been unable to germinate it. And I learned a couple years ago about a really simple technique to get your celery to, to germinate. And that's just to put a humidity dome over it. So there's a lot of different ways that you can do that. You can take some, a small flat, fill it with soil, put your celery seed on the top of it, and don't really bury it. Just kind of press it in. It's good that it has a little bit of light. And you can put that inside a, a big Ziploc bag. And you'll get great germination. Or you can get a flat with a, with a proper dome, or you can get like a Parks... Uh, seed starting dome or anything like that. But as soon as I started putting a dome over my celery, I started getting almost 100% germination. And before I did that, I got almost none. So I like to grow celery, and this plant is beautiful. That's part of why I'm going to grow it. 
the other reason, though, is I do, as many of y'all know, I do a lot of aquaponics. And one of the plants that I have really just had amazing results with, with aquaponics and with wicking beds, is celery. So I've got this beautiful pink celery, and I finally got some seed for it because I ordered it before I told you all about it again this year. And so that's why I'm going to be growing that one. And I, I'm really excited to, to finally get that one on the ground. The next one that I want to uh, chat with you all about today is another celery. And they didn't get me with the catalog in this one. They got me when I went to put my flipping order in, and they used that you know marketer trick that, that, that us marketers are fond of, which is, you know, if you like this, you might like that. This is a giant red celery. I'd never seen this before. But like many of you, I get tempted by the catalog, but I never fill out a form and order it. And there's a couple reasons. One, it's just easier to order online. The other reason is sometimes stuff's sold out. So if you order from a form and catalog, you just get you know bad results. But this is this looks like a beautiful plant as well. It's a giant red celery, and I'm pretty much growing it for the same reasons that I'm growing uh, the Chinese pink, other than it's it's just a different color and it's a larger plant and. I don't have a ton to say about this one, guys, other than I, I just, uh, they got me, right? They got me, and uh, because they got me, I'm going to grow it. And uh, I'm excited about what these colors, right, can can bring to the table uh, in a lot of different ways. You know, I'm, I occasionally have an adult beverage or two. I'm pretty big on Bloody Marys, and either one of those seems like they'd be awesome as a, a Bloody Mary garnish. Um I'm actually big on celery with more than just, you know, celery is a stick that you're chewing and gnawing on. I'm, I'm big on cooking with celery. Uh, definitely kind of, you know, as an aromatic and like a mirepoix, but I'm also big on just cooking with celery. I think it's an overlooked vegetable. And so I'll a lot of times take celery, I'll slice it on the bias, and I'll make it part of a vegetable kind of like a stir fry or something like that. And I encourage you to start experimenting more with it. And somebody's commenting in the comment section right now, about uh, the shirt I'm wearing, it says do the work. And, and I've had some people ask about shirts. 99% of the time, the shirts you see me wearing in these live streams are from John Willis at Original SOE Gear. Uh, you need to check him out. SEO Tactical Gear, great company, but he has a lot of like really cool t-shirts as well. And this one does say, do the work. And uh, I am fond of that philosophy. Uh, I think my favorite two from him are actually, one says, no one cares, work harder. And I really love that one. I think he might have lifted that saying for me. Uh, and then the other one is, I'm not participating in your new normal. And uh, he's a really great guy, and I just wanted to throw that out there since somebody commented on it. All right, let's get back into the different stuff we'll be growing this year. And this is one, well, they got me, guys. They got me with the freaking catalog on this one. When I turned the page and saw this, I was like, I have to grow it. It's called Blue Balloon Flower. And I've never heard of this before. And I'm not a huge guy on flowers and ornamentals. I try to make sure that I grow enough flowering herbs and some, some, some quality flowers and stuff like that just to bring in pollinators and things like that. But I don't generally sit around getting excited about growing flowers in particular. Um, I don't know why, I just don't. When I saw this one, I thought, this is beautiful, and it produces an edible root. And for those that can see in the, uh, in the video... Um, they, they basically either uh, saute or pickle the roots. <clears throat> and I'm not huge on tubers, and I'm kind of flapping through these right now so you can get a look at them. I'm not big on tubers. I'm not big on carbohydrate. But when I look at this, I see a lot of potential here. 
And when I read something like this can be pickled, this is more how I've been using a lot of tubers lately, is either doing a natural fermentation pickle or a, you know, a vinegar-based pickle and infusing different flavors into them and using them more as garnishes. And this just seems like a really awesome freaking plant to be able to experiment with that and maybe infuse some flavors into it. Like, um, I, I, First thing I would have to do is try this. It, it, it doesn't really explain much about what it tastes like, so I, I really don't know. Based on the fact that this is a flower, And it, the, the, the shape and of the root, I would expect this to have a flavor somewhat similar to like Jerusalem artichoke. Whether it would go more to the sweet side of that or the, the, the savory side, I wouldn't know. Um, but they are appreciated for having antimicrobial, antibacterial, and other medicinal qualities, and yet they're used culinarily. So I always like when I see something that has kind of a, a tonifying effect or any sort of medicinal effect that, that can be used just as a culinary Uh, product as well. It always excites me. And I've got some other stuff I want to talk to you about growing today that I think you'll start to see when I start talking about infusing flavors where we can go. Before we do that, though, this is one I've, I've really thought about growing a lot in the past, and I just have never done it. It's called lettuce leaf basil. And it's just a huge, uh, a huge leaf variety of basil. I mean, the leaves are big enough to use as uh, like lettuce wraps. And I've always been a huge fan of basil. And one of the things that I think you can do when it comes to selecting new things to grow, it's always a gamble, right? You figure out what does well for you. There's certain things like, I can grow peppers. I don't even have to try. I bet you if I planted nothing this year, some of the peppers that fell on the ground will grow for me, right? And, and that's, that's true with basil even more so. So one of your little hacks is when you try something new, You know, maybe if basil does well, try a different variety of basil. If radishes do well, try a different variety of radish. If peppers, try a different variety of peppers. So you're still kind of in that same wheelhouse. And I just think this is going to be a fantastic crop. And there's something else going on here, too. I don't just grow all this stuff for myself. I grow it to discover it, to be able to talk about it, because, you know, I love getting this catalog every year. I love looking at these pictures. It gives you all this good feeling. It's going to be great. But I accept that any seed company is going to sell, you know, kind of the attributes of the product that they're selling, and, and they're going to make it look as good as they can. And I also just kind of accept that not everything is going to do well for everybody. So I know some of the stuff I select every year. You know, if I get 25 to 50% of new items to produce well for me and enjoy them and want to grow them again sometime, I feel that like a home run. But I also try to always look at things, because I know a lot of you guys grow for market, you actually make a profit on what you're growing. Or some of you start plants and you sell them at farmer's market, you know, things like that. Or you're selling to restaurants or what have you. And I try to explore some of these options so that I can give you an honest critique. Is this thing as good as it looks on paper or not? And, you know, if, if, if it, even if it is, okay, is it going to survive being harvested Thursday and sold on Saturday at the farmer's market? Because some stuff won't. Some stuff's great, but you cut it, man, and you start that, that, that countdown. And some stuff can last a week beautifully if properly taken care of, and some of it can't. I personally think that that lettuce leaf basil, though, if 
if that does well at all, that seems like a huge product to market to any kind of farm-to-fork restaurant. Again, like that use as a lettuce wrap just seems like an explosion of flavor, even if it was paired with like, you take a romaine cup and then uh, uh, one of those as well, or on a salad, you know, just as kind of like a final big leaf. Or um, I did one year, and this was like eating crack. We I grew some nasturtiums, and the nasturtiums were massive. I mean, they were... They were bigger than a cathead biscuit in diameter, the leaves of the nasturtiums. And uh, we took those nasturtium leaves and we would make like a little spring roll with two of them because they do get kind of tender when they get something hot on them. And so we would take two of them and bundle them together. And I, I got some uh, snails, just canned escargot snails. And I did them out on the grill with butter and garlic. And then we took the snails, about two to a roll, And uh, cut them in half because they're kind of big, so you're not kind of pulling them out when you're eating them. And then we took some garlic chives and some onion chives, and we we kind of nestled them in and made like a spring roll out of those. And that that was freaking amazing. That was something like you ate that and you go, why isn't this in a restaurant? And part of it is that nasturtium grains don't keep keep that well. I think a restaurant doing that would either have to have daily deliveries. Maybe do it one day a week, or they need to be growing assertions on the back wall of the restaurant, like to be able to do that. And then you only have a limited season in the South where you can do it because once it gets hot enough, the assertions are like, I quit and they go away. Well, that basil, that basil, you get, basil gets heat, it just goes, more please, more please, I'll take some more of that. Uh, so that would be like one idea of how something like that could be used. And one of the things I want to talk to you guys about, those of you that want to grow for profit or are growing for profit, As you start to expand into marketing, into the culinary world and trying to sell to restaurants, which is a great business model unless you're like New York where they keep closing them down, uh, because they order in volume and they order consistently. There's a, there's a fine line with chefs. Chefs can be a little bit arrogant. I mean, even in small little you know, niche restaurants, you never heard the guy's name. I'm not talking about just TV chefs. I'm not talking just about Guy Fieri or Bobby Flay. They can be a little bit arrogant with not really wanting to take suggestions, but on the other hand, sometimes they need a suggestion so that they can take that item and do something with it. And, and what we found when we were marketing duck eggs is if you said something like, you know what we do is we do the blah, 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 you kind of got like the, the whole chef block, right? You know, like, like I don't need you. You're, you're some, some plebe telling me what to do with food. But if you say, like, I, I, you know, I was at a restaurant one time and they did this with it. I wonder if there's anything like that you might think is cool or something like they tend to open up a little bit more uh with what, what can be done with them and I, i think that basil leaf is going to be easy to grow fast to grow tolerate heat basil generally if it's if, if you when you cut it you you put some like uh some sort of like a moisture like just like paper toweling or something around the stalks and package it right it keeps good for about a week I think that would be really, really a great idea. K-Bonk is asking me if I've ever tried growing snails. I did try to grow, I can't remember what they're, apple snails, I guess they're called. Not apple snails, mystery snails, which you can buy in the, the pet trade. And they're supposed to just overpopulate everything, and supposedly they're edible, and once they get to a certain size, you can eat them. Um, and I, I put like 20 of them in, into my system, and then they never, I never saw one ever again. I have a ton of ram's horns, but I don't think they make a good eating snail. And I have a ton of little pond snails, and they don't work. If I could find a snail that would do well in my systems, I would definitely grow snails. I think 
Uh, any kind of shellfish. I mean, some people are like, ew, snails, man. Mollusks and me, we get along. But um, I just don't know that it's the right climate or I have the right systems for it. Uh, let's go back to some other stuff I want to grow. This is another one of these really unique plants that I talked about these last year. This was another thing that when I talked about them, I talked too long and ordered too late, and I didn't get to buy any last year. And it's called a Chinese python snake bean. And it's not actually a bean. It's actually like a gourd or a squash. And they grow, you know, over three foot long and up to a couple inches in diameter, but they taste a lot like green beans. And those of you on the video can see the old man. I don't know where that old codger's from, but Baker Creek has got a good character trait there. Uh, but there's the flower on that. It's an interesting-looking little flower. kind of reminds me of, like, Lufagord flower. And I'm excited about growing these because just I've never done it before. I'm a big fan of... Uh, Of, of green beans in general, any kind of pot. And we tend to have a couple seasons here. We have everything freezes and dies season. We have everything explodes in growth season. We call that early spring. We have heat comes and kills half of everything season. And then we have everything blows up again that didn't die during the summer season. We call that fall. And what happens is when we plant green beans, we have to wait till it's warm enough to plant them. And they start growing, and they take a certain amount of time to start producing. They're quick, but they're not that quick. And then uh, heat death season comes, and we end up with a lot of different issues with diseases like rust on our green beans. So we have a pretty limited window of good production from green beans. And that's why I've gone to growing a lot of the uh, the, the Chinese uh, noodle beans, because they don't, they don't care. I can you know seed and reseed all through the season and, and keep propagating it. Uh, over and over again, uh, and those work well for that. But anything kind of in that niche that would help others especially, uh, I'd want to do. And this one looks real interesting. Again, it's uh, this one is called Chinese Green Python Snake Bean. It's the largest snake bean variety, growing up to 60 inches long and one and a half inches thick. That's five foot. Uh, it develops a bright green color. Uh, when you harvest them at 12 to 30 inches, you use them like green beans. Uh, or like summer squash. So I don't know what, it doesn't really say what happens when they get much bigger, like if they become uh, maybe too too tough to use well. Uh, traditionally stir-fried with peppers and onions. Yeah, I'm going to try that. Uh, in Africa, the inside of fully mature fruit can be scraped out and used like tomato paste. Now, there's no photography on that with the book, uh, so I don't know if that means it's red or it's just it has a similar characteristic or flavor. Um, but it's something I want to, I really want to check out. And if it has enough crunch to stand up, it seems like one of those things that might be really optimized for pickling, either fermented or vinegar based. My gut with that plant, just on what I know, and like I've played around with like doing fermentations of squashes and stuff like that, it, they generally don't handle a lacto fermentation well. They get really kind of limp and, and not so good eats, as Alton Brown would say. Um, But vinegar, they tend to do well. So a vinegar-based pickle with that. And that seems like one that would be really cool for a market gardener, maybe. It says it's hard to find them, and they don't travel well. But a lot of times, you know, what does travel well mean? Well, when you're, you know, local food, travel well means I can harvest it today, sell it to you 
tonight and you can eat it tomorrow and it's still good. If you're if you're growing true commercial like warehouse shipping, you have to it has to leave California two weeks ago and you have to cook it a week from now and it still has to be edible. So I think there's a, a, a big uh, difference there. Toger says he doesn't think he'd eat any freshwater snails or shellfish. Well, I would if I knew what water they came from, just saying on that. I mean, if you couldn't eat freshwater snails, uh, everybody in France would be dead by now. <laughs> but, but I understand when people don't want to eat a certain thing. Uh, moving back on into chatting about the different crops this year, this was one that I, I got pretty excited when I saw. Um, I have always been a fan of kind of the Asian style of cucumber. This one's called China Jade. Uh, cucumber, <clears throat> it's your typical Asian variety cucumber in that they grow long and slender. And my experience with these has always been I get my best results by trellising them so that they can grow and, and hang and let gravity be your friend. If they touch the ground, they tend to get all curled and twisted and knotted, and uh, they just they just aren't as great uh, as far as using them because when they're long and straight, like you see them pictured there, um, they're just easy to slice. They're easy to, to, to do whatever you want to do with them. And, I, you know, this was an easy sell for me because I really like Asian cucumbers. I, I actually prefer them to like an English slicing cucumber or our typical pickling cucumbers and things like that. They just have a milder taste. Uh, they generally taste better when used with peelings on so you don't have to peel them. Uh, they don't have a bitterness in the peel as long as they're not stressed during the grow. Uh, they work out really well. They're great for pickling. But what, what made me decide, yeah, I'll, I'll try these out, is if you grow them, uh, they're a hybrid in that they do not need to be pollinated to produce. And you might wonder, well, why, why would someone that's so big on open pollination like Jack want that? Well, we're back to there's the perfect world, and then there's a world that is practical. So, again, we have this kind of crazy seasonality here in Texas where most people have kind of, they have a Darth in winter where it's hard to grow. And then everything in between is great. Texas, we have a Darth in winter and a Darth in summer. And it's made up of different things that cause it. Cucumbers and too much heat. I know people think cucumbers love heat, and they do, right up to about 99 degrees. Well, the other thing that happens here with as we go into that summer is we have a, a just explosive populations of cucumber beetle. And cucumber beetle, uh, they, they don't really hurt the plant directly. They, they transmit a disease called cucumber mosaic virus. And if you've ever been growing cucumbers and they just look great, and then all of a sudden the leaves start to yellow and, and just kind of freaking crumble and it like it just kind of chases up the plant it starts out closer to the ground and it just slowly you know eviscerates the vine most of the time that is cucumber mosaic virus and what happens is those little yellow and black cucumber beetles they end up you know basically feeding on a plant they're they, they feed by sucking on the juice of the, of the leaves so they don't do a lot of damage, but if that plant is infected, when they go to the next plant and they feed on that plant, they then transmit that virus. And you have a couple different ways you can combat that. One is that you can grow under mesh and keep the insects out. Of course, the problem with that is you don't have enough pollination. So I'm going to be putting a pretty 
good mesh system on my greenhouse this spring. And I have a system in there, a hydroponic bucket-based system, that is ideal for growing cucumbers. It's what I put it in. It's what I built it mainly to do. And with a, a, a screen, uh, when I say screen, I'm talking about a shade cloth screen, so that we knock the, the intensity of the sun down a little bit, and we also are able to keep not every insect out. I'm sure we'll have some issues with it, but we'll be able to mitigate that. Being able to grow something this awesome that doesn't need to be pollinated, I find that to be intriguing, and we'll see how it works out. And uh, as we're going through this today, Joe asked me, are we just talking annuals today? Yes, we are. We are, we are only talking annuals today because we're talking about seed catalogs and, and, and the crack-dealing uh, mentality that comes with them. Uh, but, yeah, that's what we're digging in today is uh, seed catalogs. This is a plant next up, um, Rosa de Rotunda eggplant. And this is one I've thought about growing uh, for a long time, and I just have never done it. A couple of years ago, I started playing around with different Asian variety uh, eggplants. And one I found was called Ping Tung, and it ended up being like one of the biggest windfall. This is like when I found that plant, I was like, this is why we grow new stuff every year. Because I've never been a fan of the big old Italian eggplants, the big giant ones like you always see in the store. And I think most people that don't like eggplant, probably, that's your entire experience with eggplant. And if you don't know what you're doing as far as food prep-wise, and you buy one of those and you just cut it up and cook it some random way, it's probably the case you're not going to like it. A lot of those uh, larger eggplants, they have a certain amount of alkalinity in them. And if you don't cut them first and salt them and sweat them, it they, they kind of remind you of like, licking an ashtray when you eat one. And that's not what I think anybody's looking for, even a smoker's looking for, when it comes to culinary experiences, licking an ashtray. You salt them, and then they basically go very neutral in flavor profile, and that's why you see things like uh, uh, eggplant parmesan or something like that, where we bread it, and you basically they'll take up, they're like a sponge, they'll take up any flavors uh, that you, you provide to them. Or you can make things like baba ganoush or whatever, and that's freaking awesome. But I'm kind of the guy, I want to go out to the garden, I want to pick a plant, I want to bring it inside, chop it up, throw it in a saute pan or something like that, throw it in a bowl raw, whatever, and I want to be able to just eat it. I don't want to take these extra steps. So when I found Ping Tung, it's Asian sweet variety eggplant. It had a, like a sweetness to it. It still had that sponge-like characteristic. You throw a little soy sauce or some hoisin or something like that, it really would pull that flavor. And, uh, done as a stir-fry with shrimp and a little bit of like a shrimp stock. Uh, that was just, you know, and then something to accent it, you know, maybe radish pods or something and a little bit of green bean. It was a great plant. And when I found that, I started thinking about growing this. This one is said to have flavors that are kind of like a combination of, of eggplant, pepper, and tomato, which I find interesting because all of those are nightshades. They're all related species. It's a cool-looking little plant. And you can see that, like a classic use of it in the in the photograph, if you're able to see the photograph, is um, almost like a bruschetta, or bruschetta, or bruschetta, or whatever you want to pronounce it, where you make a little toasted bit of bread, and then it's served on top of that with like some olive oil and herbs. I'm not big on the bread anymore, but I am big on doing things like that. So I'm kind of interested in that. Like, what would that be like as a burger topper if we added a little bit of chili pepper to it? You know, with a little bit of a little kick of heat on top of it. Plus, again, guys, I do try to find some stuff and say, hey, uh, 
What about my people that are growing for profit? Um, my experience with these smaller eggplant varieties is they do store fairly well. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, like, like a winter squash, but if you harvest them, you know, midweek and you sell them to a chef on the weekend and he wants to, you know, use them in preparation through the week, that usually works out okay. This seems to me like something that you would not have a lot of competition with in, in, in many local areas. It would definitely be a seasonal variety, but a lot of the, you know, farm to fork guys, they, they really kind of dig that whole seasonality of things. So, um, error there. Um, so I wanted to try it for that alone, plus for my own use. And then my, my other thing about eggplant is I have never grown anything. It's, I'm not going to say it's pest-free. There are some sort of little leaf miner or something that gets on my eggplant, and it ends up looks like somebody went and poked little holes in it with a pin. It doesn't care. It doesn't care at all. It's like, whatever, I'll grow more leaves with the productivity. I mean, I don't really need to grow any more of the pink tongue for another season because I grew so much of it, I ended up like, what are we going to do with it? It turns out dehydrates really well. As long as you want to use it like in casseroles or soups or stir fries or whatever, uh, eggplant, just very easy, just chop it, you know, about... Uh, little less than a half inch thick uh, as far as those long ones, throw them in the Excalibur and they dehydrate perfectly. So I, I ended up with just tons and tons of this stuff, really enjoyed using it. Um, so I'm, I'm figuring here, now again, when you try something new, you never really know, but I've done a couple different varieties of eggplants. It just Ping Tung was kind of the one that was like the best tasting, looked the best, and did the best. But all of them were explosively productive. In fact, to the point where you start trying to give them away, and people are like, oh, thank you, and then you give them, they're like, no, I still got some. So I'm thinking this, this plant, based on prior performance, might be really, really good for that. Now, the next one I got for you, again, I'm thinking about myself, but I'm also thinking about you guys that grow for farmer's markets and stuff like that. This is a variety of uh, okra called Okinawan Pink Okra. Now, there was there was one that was on the cover of Baker Creek last year. I can't remember what it was called. It was orange something, and it looked really cool, and it didn't do well for me. Um, good old-fashioned, regular, everyday, you know, Crimson Spineless Okra has done really well for me. Burgundy Okra has done really well for me. Um, this one looks gorgeous. It looks like pink icicles. And it is an Asian variety of, of okra. My understanding is okra all originated in Africa. Uh, but I imagine as, you know, things expanded and got traded, then things got bred uh, and, and selected locally. So if did this actually come from Africa and just get really adopted in Asia, or was it bred in Asia? I don't know. It doesn't provide us with that information, but it, it was sourced uh, out of Asia, specifically China. And it is an incredibly beautiful-looking plant. And I think okra is one of the best edible ornamentals that there is. And, and the reason that I say that is I think okra from you know certain groups of people probably gets looked down on a little bit as you know something poor Southerners uh, eat or something like that. And you know when it first came to, to North America, it was really slave food. It was African slaves that brought seeds along with them 
and made it part of their, their, their diet. Of course, it's very famous in uh, Louisiana uh, for use in okra and for other things. And you, I don't think you can, not okra, I'm sorry, gumbo. And I don't, th I personally don't think you, you can make okra be okra. I'm sorry, I keep saying okra. You can make gumbo be gumbo without okra. There's just you can't really get that consistency of the broth. I don't care how good your roux, your roux is without okra in it. But have and, and if you cook it, any any time I've grown these okras that are different colors, you cook them, they turn green, right? So like they don't hold the color in the cook. But boy, color sells, and a and they're to me they're a beautiful plant. And I think okra is beautiful. In, when it's producing its pods, but I also think it's beautiful when you go ahead and let some of those pods completely flower out. So I'm thinking this one would be really, really cool. And then I don't know about y'all, I like pickled okra. I know some people don't, but I do. And I think you'd be able to, with a vinegar-based pickle, get it to hold that pink color. And I would do that as a baby pickled okra so you know you're talking about like two inch pods and I think that could be for some of y'all that are doing like a value added product could be really amazing because I've never seen anything like that pink pickled okra pink pickled baby okra in jars would I'd buy it I mean I would buy it at least to try it um, Trey says he's not a fan of okra in his gumbo. You're kind of like people that think you can put beans in chili and still call it chili then. I'm sorry. No, it's fine. Everybody has personal preferences. But uh, I'm really kind of excited about uh, growing that this year because it's been something, except for that one, it was like ting something, orange. That one didn't do well for me. Every okra I ever grew exploded for me. And Steve's saying okra is great. I wish I could figure out how to grow it in zone five. I love pickled okra, fried okra, all okra. Um, it loves heat, uh, man. It is a, it is definitely, like I said, it's from the African continent. It's from the hot part of Africa too. Um, one of the things that you could try if you're in a, a lower zone, it does pretty well started, you know, early and then put out like we do with tomatoes and peppers, but started a little later than you do those things. So that by the time you're putting it out, it is, it is significantly hot, but it has a huge root structure. It's a deep, you know, it almost when if you if you ever pull one out at the end of a season, it almost looks like a tree root, like a tree tap root. So what I've found is if you want to be able to transplant okra and have it do well for you, plant it, you know, when you start it, start it in something that's long that gives a lot of room for that root to kind of come out in a carrot-like shape. So. Um, You know, one of the cheapest things you can start plants in are like the 16-ounce red Solo cups we all used to get at booze parties and drink from when we were kids, those cups, right? Um, and just drill some holes in the bottom of them for drainage. And that way you can let that plant size out. And understand, most plants, when you look at them, if they're, if they're six inches tall, they have six inches of root structure. So then you got to kind of time when that plant moves out before you start to do damage to the roots. And the other thing I would do with a plant like okra in a northern climate, see if you can find a place like a south-facing brick wall, right, where I just wouldn't want to plant anything against the south-facing brick wall in Texas. That's like asking for it to be fried. But where you're at, that heat, especially as you're coming into your early summer, and carryover may be helpful. And the other thing is if you have a, uh, a greenhouse, 
It might be too hot in there, but if you did a greenhouse with like a 30% shade cloth, you might be able to grow some of these plants that are more of southern varieties. But also remember, part of this is you find out what works well for you and then grow that. So um, there's a lot of things that grow really well in Zone 6 and Zone 5. I grew up in Zone 6 that don't do so well for us down here in Texas that I would love to grow. And then there's things that I can grow here that we always struggle with. We grew a lot of peppers when I was a kid, and they did okay. But I, I never knew, you know, that pepper plants could be five foot tall in a single season or taller until I moved into the south. Like, I think if you can't grow okra and peppers in the south, you need to work on your base skill level a lot because it's, it's really some of the easiest stuff to grow down here. And it's, it's not easy to grow in other places. Uh, next up, this is a wild zatar oregano. And whenever I find an herb that it, at least it is claimed, that it is, is basically still in its wild form. It hasn't really been cultivated, uh, or like I said, selectively bred. It's been cultivated, but not selectively bred. Uh, I'm always interested in it. And this is going back to my philosophy again with do what has already shown to do well for you. So just growing plain old everyday oregano, which is a perennial, but generally in my zone is considered an annual. Um, I don't know who considers it an annual because it survives every year. Last year, um, I have about four just plain old, and I mean, they're like, when I say plain old oregano, I mean like Home Depot, Lowe's, Bonnie, oregano in a cup, and you throw it in the garden. I have like four or five of those out last year, and even with those, now they were a couple seasons old, two of them made it last year. And for those that don't know what happened to us last year in Texas, we got about 10 days where it did not go above freezing for the high. And of those 10 days, about five days, it didn't get out of the single digits. And we had multiple days with lows in the negatives. And I know if you're from like where I grew up in Pennsylvania or something like that, whatever, that's Tuesday in the winter. And I understand that. That's not how Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas area is. We had a 60,000-acre lake freeze completely over. That does not happen here. There were dummies walking on it. Fortunately, none of them fell through, or unfortunately, depending on how you feel about humans and Darwinism. You know, a Darwin Award there could have been awarded, um, but it wasn't. But that doesn't happen. And even in that case, like half of my oregano still came back once it was firmly established. So I'm wondering, now this is a, a, a very Mediterranean, you know, oregano, but I'm wondering if it might be able to make it through our winters, and that would add a different variety of oregano. And the flavor is a blend of oregano, thyme, and marjoram. Now, I find that to be really interesting. I also find that to be another one of those things that, you know, you guys that, uh, that, that grow for a profit, that, that, that sell to restaurants, it would be a really interesting plant to be able to market. And it's an herb. And you know what you call an herb when you don't know what it's for? You call it a weed. Because that's how it grows. They're like honey badgers. They're indestructible. You can grow large, large amounts of them. So I think that would be another one that uh, some of you guys might want to check out. Now, the next one, I'm freaking stoked about this. And I just hope I just hope the sizzle matches the steak on this one. I really do. I have always wanted to grow wasabi. And I have found some stuff that gets you close. I brought to you guys like two years ago when I started doing hydro a wasabi arugula, and it is all there. When you let somebody taste it, 
And they know what wasabi's supposed to taste like that. They're like, they get hit in the nose with it. But it's still, it's arugula. It's a leaf. And, and what we've taken to doing with it, if I do my own uh, sashimi, I'll slice like tuna and I'll put like one leaf of that oregano around the tuna. And you get that, and a little, little tiny bit of soy, man, you get that experience, but it's not, it's the flavor, but there's zero in the texture. This is a radish that's a bulb radish that's supposed to taste exactly like wasabi. And if it is, I'm going to grow the hell out of this. I mean, I'm going to grow, because I, I'll tell you what I can grow is radishes. I can grow radishes all the damn time. I don't even have to try. And again, so we're back to trying to make something that we know works and get something different out of it. And I am pretty excited about this one. When it's grated up, it even kind of looks like wasabi. And I've had a lot of people tell me wasabi is nowhere near as hard to grow as people think. Okay, then grow it. Because it seems like the people that tell me that are never growing it, right? Like, well, where's yours? Well, I don't have any. Um, so you don't know. Uh, this seems like a really great idea. And I have another plant coming later that will kind of come back on this. But my other thought with this is I grow a lot of daikon. And mostly what I do with daikon is I let it go to seed and flower because it's a great pollinator crop. And it's a great, um, it's a great crop for improving soil. And I do use some every year in pickles and slaws and stuff like that. But mostly what I do is when the pods come on it, I pick the seed pods and I'll do like them in salads or stir fries. And I'm wondering what the seed pods of this radish is going to be like. Because if you get, it looks like green bean, tastes like wasabi, you can play with that culinarily really, really well. And I don't know how well they are, you know, as far as how long do they take to produce seed pods, how much does the plant produce, but this one's worth experiment with. And this is another thing. If you're selling to restaurants, you're selling to chefs, if you can walk in and hand them a radish, especially if they're kind of an Asian theme that tastes like wasabi, I think you'll get their attention. And if you can do a seed pod that tastes like that, or what about the seed pods of this in a pickle? Or the, the seed pods and the radish itself in a pickle. There just seems like there's there's got to be something to this one that that if it if it lives up to what it's being sold as, if it really does taste like wasabi, uh, and you're a wasabi person, it's kind of like perfect world all come together. And that's kind of where we're moving with this right now, moving more toward substitutions. I'll talk about some things that we can grow that maybe we wish we could grow the other thing. It's either too hard, it's not climate right, the climate's not right, it's not worth it, like you need so much space, it's not worth it. And one of the most expensive things in the world that you can buy is called saffron. I, I believe it is, in, in my estimation, or my knowledge anyway, the single most expensive um, herb by weight in the world. I think it actually sells for more than gold does when you when you measure it out by weight. And it comes from a plant called a crocus. And you get this plant that it, it's not in the tulip family. It doesn't grow where tulips grow, but it kind of sort of in a way looks like a tulip. And there's a couple little stamens inside it, and there's your that that's your saffron. That's it. That's all you get. So you get big flower, like three or four little stems. That's why it's so expensive. Um I, I didn't know until I, I got this year's crack catalog that uh, safflower 
is actually called safflower because it can be used as a substitute for saffron. And that's what this this uh, the safflower is right here. It's uh it's called Corallus azafron safflower. And it lets me, again, not being the guy that's big on just growing flowers for the sake of growing flowers, if I can grow flowers, if I can get the beauty of a flower, if I can attract pollinators, if I can provide beneficial habitat, but the yield from the flower is something beneficial. That's why I always grow early in the year. Um, I grow nasturtiums, which I mentioned earlier, and I grow calendula, because calendula is a decent potter, but it's also a decent medicinal herb. Nasturtium is a, just a delicious plant. I love the flowers and I love the leaves both. So if I can actually grow something akin to my own saffron here, uh, I think that would be cool. So I'm pretty excited about giving this a chance. I've never grown it before. Um, it says the original seed was originally brought to New Mexico. It's widely adapted. Flowers can be used for coloring spice, dried to brew tea, and also dye with deep orange, almost red pigment. The young plants make a delicious leafy green. The seeds can be pressed into oil. I don't think anybody in a home growing scale is going to be doing that. And the deep tap, uh, tap roots are a very efficient soil breaker. So that's that's what I want to do. If I want to like kind of branch out and and try something different, if I can find something that's not a unitasker, to me that's really exciting. Uh, K-Monk says, Jack, all this will be hydroponic? App? No, absolutely not. Most of it won't be, honestly. Some of it will. I'm definitely going to grow. I'm going to grow some of that le lettuce. As soon as my seeds get here, some of that lettuce leaf basil is going to one of my hydro indoor systems. Absolutely, because I love basil this time of year when no one else has it. Uh, but a lot of it's going to go in my gardens. And that's kind of like one of the reasons I'm doing this is I have so, many, have so much bed space. Some of this will be aquaponic. Some of it will be hydroponic. Most of this will be grown, and I have you know a tremendous amount of uh, wicking beds and regular-based uh, garden beds, so that's how I'm going to be growing most of this. And then, um, but, but what I was saying on the, uh, on the safflower, if you have something that improves soil, attracts beneficials, provides a uh, kind of a, a medicinal and a culinary herb, provides, a, a, you know, a, as a young plant, provides an additional green and improves soil at the same time, you got... A, a big win there. And I've thought about trying to grow crocuses and, and produce saffron just so I could say I did it. And I'm, I really don't think it's worth it. That's why nobody does it in the United States. It's just not, we're not meant to do it. But it, when I looked at this, it, it gave me an idea. An idea. Um, it, it, how many of y'all that are in the live stream have heard of a doghead brewing? I think it's called Doghead Brewing. They do some really cool beers and ales. And one that they do is really more of a, a mead than a beer. And I can't remember what it's called now. Somebody will probably know it and tell me. But it's made with, um, I think, muscadine grape. White muscadine. And it's uh, in honey. And... Um, Midas Touch, that's what it's called, Midas Touch, because it's beautiful golden orange color. And they get that color using saffron. So I'm thinking that some of my mead stuff might be livened up with this safflower. Yep, Midas Touch, Troy's got it. Yep, that's what it is. And that that's one of those, you know, I don't drink a lot of beers anymore, uh, because one, I've cut my drinking way back, but I've also cut carbohydrates way back. But if I'm going to make something, 
You know, I, I can make plain old garden variety meat any day, but I like to be able to make meats that are unique and have stories behind them and things like that. So that's kind of a big part of what I want to uh, accomplish with, with growing this, if it works. And it's one of those ones that if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. This one I know will work, and it's not new. I've talked about it a long time. Um, this is, uh, they call it something different than I do. They call it zucchini ramp, zu, zu, wow, zu, zucchino rampaneski squash. This is why I call it, uh, uh um, trombuchino, because it's easier to say trombuchino than it is that thing. But this is a, a squash that can be used as both a winter and a summer squash. I've grown this forever now. It is the only squash that I've been able to consistently grow that defeats squash vine borers when they come in in our summer period. The squash, squash vine borers do after it. They attack it, but if the plant's well established, it just keeps growing it don't care. So why did I bring it around this year? Well, because when I was going through the catalog, buying my crack for the year, I saw this and said, you know what, it's probably a good time to bring some new genetics in. So I wanted to talk to you about that a bit as well. I've been growing this for four seasons now, and I've saved the seed here locally so it's well adapted. But the first year I grew it, it did well. And I think it's good for those of us who are developing seed strains and all. To every once in a while, bring in some new genetics of the same plant. I'm not talking about hybridization here. I'm talking about the exact same species and variety. And to continue to evolve those genetics. Because as you select from that next generation, you're going to select the best of the best to save seed from. And you're going to keep strengthening those genetics. But this plant and, and it is one that I recommend everybody try. And I don't know how far north you can go, but I've had people grow this as far north as Zone 6, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, etc., and they told me it did great. It does great here. When you let it get really big and you let it stay on the vine, it turns an orange color, kind of a light orange, pinkish color like a pumpkin. It gets a very thick skin. It will store for months. You don't have to do anything as long as you don't break it. Because when they get big, they're easy to break if you're not careful. Once it kind of firms up, you can set it on a shelf in your pantry. And four months later, you can cut it open and eat it. And it tastes a lot like butternut squash. When they're young, they taste like zucchini. But that long neck has no seeds. So you take that long neck and you do something like put it through a freaking food processor and you get perfectly sliced zucchini slices. Um, really, really, really easy to do. And I've played around, like I said, with, with pickling. Uh, squash, And as long as you're talking about a vinegar pickle, it actually comes out really well. Uh, they also produce a lot of blossoms. I like to eat squash blossoms as well. And uh, they're just an impressive plant. And uh, you can see most of the pictures that they have on the site for Baker Creek, well, they are kind of like wound up, right? They're kind of twisty. And that's because, those, I can tell you right now, those were grown on the ground. If you trellis Trombuchino... It grows super straight. I've got pictures you know, of me holding some that are four and a half foot long and weigh over 25 pounds. And they grow perfectly straight. And the vines have the ability to support them. They're not going to fall off. You don't need to tie them up or anything like that. If one gets wounded or something, uh, maybe. Uh, <laughs> Ephraim says, how many, how many is the bare minimum of seed catalogs uh, you look at through each year? <sighs> Dozens. I don't know. I pretty much look at them all when they come in. I will say there is something to marketing with photography, and several people have commented on, on Baker Creek's photography, including me on this episode so far. Um, 
they're kind of easier to look through when they have good photography. So if you're a seed catalog company, you don't do as good a business, and you're actually sending out physical catalogs, you might want to up your photography game. And I would go with a smaller catalog, pushing people to the website with great pictures over a great big catalog that has everything with little bitty, you know, kind of non-glossies. And I bet you most people in the, in the stream here would, would agree with that. But I do, I'm, I'm glad you asked that. Because I do want to point something out. One of the reasons I have so much knowledge about plants and plant types and varieties is that I literally sit down and read seed catalogs. Now, I don't, I'm not saying that I read every variety in every catalog that comes in. And at this point, I've read a lot of them, so I know this variety, I know that variety. But I do read, and even if it's something I'm not going to grow, I read it. And I start to form in my mind relationships of okay, this is in the aster family, right? So it's probably going to do this, or this is in the this is a this is a squash, but is it a it a mixta or a maxima or you know you know or a moschetto? Like what what species within the the family of squash is this thing? So what does that mean about where it's going to do it? Who grew it? Where did it come from? Where is it grown commercially? Right, and I, I learn a ton through catalogs. So even if you're not going to, you know, go out and buy 15 varieties every year, you're going to pick one or two. If somebody will send you a catalog for free, with information in it for free, to learn about plants for free, I would do it. And it's one of my favorite things in the winter time is to kick back and relax with a seed catalog, especially like a really cold day. You know, maybe you have a little blackberry liquor or something that you made up for yourself or a really good winter mead, and you sit and look out the window and it's cold and icy and nasty out there, but you're all inside all warm and you're thinking of spring and reading through them. Man, I, I love that. So thanks for asking that question. Um, next one that we got, this was one that my wife fell in love with, and she fell in love with another sunflower variety, too. We got that one going as well. This is the one on the cover of the Dadgone catalog. Um, it is uh, called Chocolate Cherry Sunflower. And I don't know that it's going to produce sunflower seeds that are much in the way of any culinary value. But it is just a gorgeous plant. And this is another thing. Like I think you know, you, when you bring something new in you've never grown before... You take a bit of a risk, but we grow sun we grow sunflower accidentally all over the place because we feed the birds black oil sunflower, just the cheap stuff that comes from you know like tractor supplier Atwoods or whatever. And we as long as the plant gets past the the uh, the sprout stage before the ducks find it, we grow sunflower like crazy. Um, really beautiful plant. I, I see a lot of uh, bee activity, uh, specifically more bumblebees than honeybees on on sunflower. So we're going to grow this one just because Dorothy wants to. And, you know, when 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 someone deals with all the crap you deal with with a podcaster for a husband uh, and their wife wants something, if you're smart, you do it. Um, and then, and uh, we're going to be, we're going to skip ahead here for a second, and we're going to talk about the last one. So there's a Mexican red sunflower. Uh, I don't know if I'll find that one for the live stream or not, but it's just a beautiful plant as well. And... Uh, This is this is the other one that I found, and this one I did not see in the catalog, and in my opinion, it probably should be in there. Um, I saw this, and I'm like, i got to try this. And I talked earlier about the wasabi radish and the seed pods. This one is grown specifically for the seed pods, and it produces them in abundance. And they are really pretty red streaked with red, red and green, like purple, red, and green streaked. 
and a really cool-looking little flower that I bet tastes delicious as well. I am not a big guy on radish, okay? I'm not huge on um, growing, uh, like, cherry bell radishes and things like that uh, for the purpose of, uh, of, of just eating straight-up radishes. I've never been a fan of the typical breakfast radish or anything like that, you know, sliced up as a... Is like a, uh, what am I trying to say, like a garnish or something like that. Like I'm, I'm always the guy that leaves that thing to be taken away by the busboy or whatever. Right? I've, I've never been big. But daikons, especially when they're pickled or fermented or made into like a slaw, uh, the pods, etc., that I really, really enjoy. And I think that this, uh, this, 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 this red rat tail, could be a really amazing thing. And what I'm thinking is, if those wasabi radishes produce a good seed pod, and you do a mix of the wasabi and the red rat's tail radish in a pickle, um, that could be pretty cool. And then the last one, I did find it, um, is the Mexican red sunflower. And this was another one that my wife just want, went, I want that. So I'm like, okay, well, we're getting it. Now, One of the things about this that I'm going to be interested in figuring out here is this is very much an ornamental if you look at it. It's, it's bright red, bumblebee friendly. They're not a huge plant. Um, they grow fairly small, lots of flowers per, per plant, uh, produce all season long. They grow about five foot tall, um, but they're really mostly an ornamental. However, it's been my experience that Mexican sunflower in general is a really great fodder plant. And that could be a problem. That could be a problem because, like, any kind of rodent species or whatever would tend to eat it. Uh, my friend Nick Ferguson brought me a Mexican sunflower one time, a little start, and he's like, you can just cut a stick off, put it in the ground, and it'll start growing. I was like, oh, that's great. I put it out in my little nursery area, and I went out there two days later, and it was gone. Something ate it like below the soil level and destroyed it. So I'm not sure if that's going to be the case. Now, if that's going to be the case, but it doesn't get eaten until it's like fed, it might be a good duck fodder plant addition to an ornamental. But that's going to be the last one that I'm going to uh, talk about today. Um, and again, I, I'm hoping that this wasn't just a list of plants. That like as we went through this, we kind of covered some things about how to think about this a little bit differently and and uh, how to make selections like this on your own because there's there's no doubt that I might want to grow some things that you don't want to grow or you want to grow some things I don't want to grow or that living in different climate types, some of the things that are super easy for me to grow would be difficult for you to grow or vice versa. And being able to, like, like we did with the safflower versus saffron, and finding that substitution, or a wasabi radish versus true wasabi, right? Things like that allow us to adjust things to where we are. And I want to kind of talk from the, the permaculture perspective a little bit here. One of the things that hooked me on permaculture very early on was seeing things like Sepholzer grow a freaking lemon tree in the middle of the Austrian Alps. And when, when I saw that, I'm like, I want to grow a lemon tree in Texas. If, if Sepp Holzer can grow a lemon tree in the Austrian Alps, I grow one here in, in, in North Texas. 
Turns out it's actually easier for Seth to do in the Alps than it is for me to do here, because when I get a nine degree below zero day, there's no snow blanket, there's no snow cover that I can basically utilize as an insulation blanket over top of that tree and let it sleep through the winter, which is what he's doing. And so that's kind of like a magic trick. And there's a lot of people that have done a lot of really cool magic tricks, and I, I'm not putting them down. But what you're not going to see is even a Sepp Holzer with a lemon orchard, right, in the Austrian house. So you see a lemon tree in the most optimum area with special extra care and things like that so they can go, wow, look, a lemon, right? And I think that we get seduced by this in our space to where I want to have that thing that no one thinks can be done and prove that it can be done. And I did it. To a degree. I mean, I grew satsumas here for like five seasons, and they lived. It's a kind of cold, hardy uh, citrus, like an orange, like a tangerine orange thing. And they did, and then we got one of those winners. And they're just, and I, I covered them, and there's just nothing you can do because you're sitting wide ass open. And the other thing that you're dealing with in for for like this particular thing we're talking about, if you're in these temperate climates. You have this temperature that comes down really slowly over time in a very typical seasonal cycle of ebbs and flows of highs and lows. Like it'll get as hot in parts of Montana as it'll get in Texas, but it'll take a long time to get there and then it kind of levels off and comes back down and it's nice and dry so you don't feel like you're going to die. Where we can have one day in Texas that's below zero and the next day is 85 degrees. And we can also have days like consistently in the 80s and 70s for lows. And then have a week where we start to cool off and we're having lows in the 50s. And then go from the 50s down to 5 degrees for a low. We just, we just did it not quite that extreme, but we had, we had not had a day that was even close to freezing. And we had a couple weeks leading up to Christmas where average temperature during the day was in the 80s. Overnight lows were in the 60s. And then it was 19 degrees four days later. So when you look at something like growing an, an, an orange or a lemon here versus Austria, it seems like, well, it would be easier to do here than there. Maybe. I'm not Seth Holzer. I don't claim to be. And I also can't get deep soils to protect the roots because of rock and stuff like that here. Uh, you know, Most of my property is less than a foot of dirt, and then it's slab rock. It's like growing on a, a concrete parking lot. So that makes it a little harder. But again, even Sepp, you're not going to see him growing, you know, he's not growing orchard, orchards of lemons for market. He does this magic trick, right? It's magic. Look what I can do. Like, just to show that it can be done. Let's set it up so that the ponds are reflecting the sun and we're creating a solar thing. And that's very, very cool. But I don't think it's really the smartest thing. You know, I talked about my grandfather in the beginning of this for those that were here for it. And, you know, growing up, Like I said, we didn't garden as a hobby. We didn't garden because it was cool. We didn't garden because we were hippies. We gardened because we were freaking, to be blunt, we were poor. You know, I'm the son of a bootleg coal miner from central Pennsylvania. Let me say that again. I'm the son of a bootleg coal miner from central Pennsylvania. And he is the son of a Ukrainian immigrant bootleg coal miner who settled in central Pennsylvania. This is not exactly a demographic of the wealthy. Okay? It isn't. 
So when we gardened, we gardened for subsistence. I went fishing a lot as a kid. I loved to do it. No one ever had to twist my arm to do it. But there was an expectation that if I spent all day on a Saturday screwing off and I said I was going fishing, then, you know, I didn't have like some, you know, overarching evil grandparents that were like, you know, because you had a bad day, you're in trouble. But there was a reasonable expectation that when I came home, there'd be a stringer full of fish. And that I would take the step of filleting those fish or gutting them or whatever and freezing them or, or whatever needed to be done so that that day's efforts, even if a couple of them got ate that night, there was some extra that got put aside so that when we were in winter and it wasn't so easy to get fish, there was some fish in the deep freeze. Or if it was early in the year and they were trout, you know, they would smoke well or something like that. We went hunting. It was for food. And this is the Survival Podcast. So even though I think it's cool that we do all these kind of odd, weird, pretty colors, great flavors, and we should do it, we should also try to do it from a, from a stance of, if I have to take care of it like a baby, when it's fully grown, it's a hobby. And if it's something that's supposed to sustain me, once I get it to a certain point, maybe it needs a little irrigation or something like that, but it should just grow. And when I want some, I should go home and I should eat it. And I think that even though I kind of made some jokes about it in the beginning here with, you know, I'm an addict and I this, this seed catalog crack dealer and all, and I say every year I'm going to grow the you know eight to twelve things that do well for us that we use a lot of, and I end up doing this. I want to be clear, I do this too. I do grow the stuff. That, we, that produces well for us. I grow the hell out of peppers. I grow the hell out of eggplant. I grow the hell out of Chinese noodle bean. I grow the hell out of herbs like, like uh, sage and basil and things like that. I don't grow a lot of carbohydrate crops because we don't really eat them much anymore. Um, I grow, I do, you know, we've encouraged so much with like wild herbage and things that can be foraged here on the property. We, we forage a lot of things we don't even think about growing. For about three weeks every year, we, we have a, an amazing privilege, in my opinion, that we get to eat uh, black locust flower blossoms. And they taste like sweet, then they taste like pea, and then they taste like nothing. It just kind of like this sweet pea flavor, and then it just vanishes. And we, you know, we throw them in our salads and things like that. Well, I, don't, I didn't grow the locust trees for the blossoms. That was like, oh, look, here's something we can harvest. I have traveled a lot around the southern United States and wherever I go in, in the in the summer, I'm sorry, early summer and late spring, I will always see different varieties of wild garlics growing with little seed heads on them. And I always just get as much of that as I can and I bring it home I just throw it around my property. I know that 95% of it is going to go away and, and, and die and not grow or get eaten by a duck but the little bit it does is going to add to that diversity. Um, We, 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 you know, we harvest pepperweed off the property in the spring, and um, we grow watercress in, in, the, in the aquatic systems. It's as simple as just throw a handful of seeds there. Like, we need to be thinking this way in addition to all these kind of cool things. And then the best thing to do when we're finding the cool things is then find the cool... The reason I'll do 15 is to find two or three this year that I can add to that list of things that we use a lot of that does well, it doesn't need a lot of attention. And that is taking the idea that, you know, when times are good, we can have all this fun. But then that fun is reinvested 
by keeping good records, seeing what works, seeing what doesn't work, and not just what works and doesn't work, but where does it do well. Um, I do have a lot of bed space and all, so I'll probably grow some of those wasabi radishes in my aviary in a wicking bed in, under shade cloth, and I'll grow some in kind of my perennial beds interplanted, and I'll grow some of my regular uh, vegetable beds. And I have some to get more sun and less sun, and I'll see where they do well. And I might find that they do really, really well in area A early and area B in midsummer and area C in the fall. And just getting a little notebook or something and keeping records like this so that if you ever actually get to the point where, like, you're doing what I did growing up. Because we do get a lot of our food from our ducks and our plants and, and, and from our fish farming and all that stuff and from foraging, but we don't have to. We do it because it's, it's delicious, it's nutritious, it's wonderful, it's a better way to live in good times. But we also do it because we don't want the skill set and the knowledge set that allows it to be possible to atrophy. Because that's what's happened to our country, guys. When, when I was growing up as a kid, the stuff that I'm talking about every day when I talk about growing your own food, if you went and said, I'm going to do a workshop on this or a presentation on this, no one would have showed up. Everybody said, I know, dummy, I got the same garden you do in my yard over here. Everybody knew how to do what was easy for them. They didn't know all types of things, but they knew Pennsylvania, you throw a tomato on the ground, kick dirt over, tomatoes will grow. Right? I mean, they knew that. So everybody grew tomatoes because it was easy to do. It was a calorie crop. It was, there's a bunch of different ways to use them, so everybody grew tomatoes. Because everybody knew that. Today, you give a person the best place in the world to grow a tomato, give them the best tomato seeds known to man, the best organic fertilizer possible, and a book, and they may not be able to grow a tomato. Because we like a patient who ends up in a coma in a bed for six months before they come back around. We have to learn to walk again as a species. These things, this idea of man and plant life, whether it's perennial or annual and livestock and natural systems and wild game and domesticated uh, animals as well, us living together in a symbiotic relationship is as natural as it gets. And everything in our society, and I didn't know I'd end up talking about this at the end of the day, but everything in our society is attempting to divorce us from that reality. Instead of saying, hey, if you're going to eat beef, there's a cow. That's where your beef comes from. You need to learn to be spiritually at peace with that and make sure that that cow has a good life right up until graduation day. And you should be buying that beef from someone down the road from you. you want to convince people it's more environmentally friendly to grind up soybeans and beets into a fake burger and call it impossible. And that's why it's called impossible, because that's an impossible way for the human species to live. We cannot fucking live that way, guys. I'm sorry. We can't. There's a show called uh, Yellowstone, and there's a scene in it where a guy's dealing with like a protesting vegan chick, and he says, have you, have you, I don't remember the exact quote, but it's like, have you ever plowed a soybean field or a, a corn field? Do you know what you have to do? You have to kill every single thing in that field to grow that food. Every every rat, every mole, every vole, every organism has to die. We don't have to do that shit. All the stuff I talked about growing today doesn't require that. In fact, it can actually make the overall environment for the health of insects and animals better. 
If you're talking about your carbon footprint, your carbon footprint, well, how much do you think your carbon footprint is when you're eating rice grown in frickin' China and soybeans grown in frickin' Missouri and you live in Florida? And how much death occurred to move that plant to you? Well, we can grow these things ourselves. We can grow these things locally. And what it involves to be able to do it the right way is the type of shit we're talking about today where we're willing to experiment and fail. We're willing to say, I spent five bucks on these seeds, I planted them, and they all died. Now, either I did something wrong or that plant doesn't belong here. So maybe I'll try it one more time. Okay, that didn't work well. Maybe I'll talk to my master gardener neighbor or something and see if she's ever heard anything about it. And if that's, then I'll just grow something else. And I'll keep figuring out what to do to be able to grow the things that I like, that my family will eat, that we can use, that help us, that are easy to grow. And that is why I've always said this for years and years and years, since I first heard it said by my late friend Toby Hemingway. Man is not an agricultural species, but we are a horticultural species. Agriculture is the culture of fields. It is where we plow a field and we destroy and kill everything in that field. That's what agriculture is. It means the culture of fields. Horticulture is the culture of plants. Where we team with plants as allies to produce foods, fibers, and medicines for ourselves and for our livestock. And for animals that are just here, that are beneficial to us, or neutral to us, or even somewhat of a pest. You can't grow the kind of diversity we talked about today, do that for years, find the things that work well and keep doing that, and give a damn that some leaf miners ate some holes in your eggplant leaf. You just don't care anymore. And that means that the prey is there, so the predator species come and they control the predator. Instead, our take on modern agriculture is we spray the hell out of it and we kill everything and then we wonder why we create super pests and there's nothing there to eat them. Think about it this way. How many wildebeest have to exist in the plains system of an African area to support one pride of lions? If you have a pride of 15 lions and you have 15 wildebeest And that's it. That's all there is for the lions to eat. How long is it going to be before there's no lions? Or they're going to start eating people? And the answer is not very long. A couple weeks. You have to have thousands of wildebeest. And, and you know, when I say wildebeest, I mean just planes game in general, right? Like impalas, wildebeest, zebras, etc. You have like a thousand animals and kind of a, a herd grouping to about a pride alliance. And if you do that, The, the Plains game will never overgrow their ecosystem because the predators will keep them in check. And the predators will never die out because they'll have something to eat. That's horticulture. It's just at a much smaller level. We're talking about ladybugs as lions and aphids as wildebeest. If you kill all the aphids, how can you expect to have ladybugs that need aphids to eat? You can't do it. That's what we're talking about today. I know it was just a list of plants, but that's what we're really talking about today. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I know I didn't do a lot of question and answer and stuff today like that. Um, we'll try to do more of that interaction on Friday with the uh, 
the show we're going to do on Friday, which will be an Outback with Jack, and it should be actually Outback this week. Tomorrow I've got Kat from Anarchapoco coming on. She's going to talk to us about Anarchapoco. i got the Expert Council show, so that won't be live-streamed. I've, I've not done that yet anyway. Uh, we'll have an Expert Council show Thursday, and I thank all of you for being here with me today. All right, folks, that will wrap up another episode, second of 2022. Um, I'd like to thank everybody who, uh, who tuned in today. I want to remind you, if you like our show and the work that we do, There are ways you can help support us. One would be become a member. Like I said during the sponsor segment at the beginning, uh, we do have a lot of people that offer discounts, not just sponsors. We have over 70 companies that offer discounts on products and services you're probably buying anyway. It's almost impossible not to get your money back. I wanted to highlight somebody. Um, Angie's Gardens came on uh, late last year as an MSB sponsor. They'd asked before, and it, it took a while before I thought their product was uh, wide enough in breadth to bring them on because when they started out, they were really just teas, and we have a couple tea providers. Uh, they kind of went into the, to a bunch of different worlds within the herbal space, the CBD space, and stuff like that. And I want to let you know about a product that I've tried from them. They were here at the workshop this fall. And my wife said she was having some trouble getting sleep once in a while. And they gave us a CBD sleep formula, and it's CBD and CBN. I think it's C, it's either CBN or CBM. It's one of them. I'm pretty sure it's CBN. Do not use this product until you're ready to go to sleep. It is flat out you are going to sleep. It is not optional once you take a dose of it. It works beautifully. It's expensive compared to plain old CBD, but as a sleep aid, it is amazing. And it has it is not It is not going to make you drugged out or high or anything like that. Um, it just, when, when you go to sleep, you go to sleep all the freaking way. Uh, that was just one example. And that, that stuff's expensive enough that probably if you use your discount on it once, you pretty much paid for your MSB for the year. Uh, but it's a lot less expensive than pharmaceutical sleep aids that cause you a lot of problems and addiction and other things like that. So that's just one example. We have seed providers. We have tons of stuff in the MSB, so consider joining today. The other thing you can do is uh, you can start your online shopping at tspaz.com. Somewhere between now and next week or the end of the month, you're probably going to buy something online. And if you're going to do that, if you just go to tspaz.com first and start your shopping there, no matter what you buy, whether it's something we recommend or not, you will help support us in the work that we do. Uh, the item of the day today, I've been talking about this product for a couple of years now, and they're still about the best value out there. Barina LED grow lights. We talked about seeds today. A lot of that involves early starting and what have you, growing indoors, hydroponics, etc. You need good grow lights. Best value out there. Just real quick, I brought them around today because they're on sale. Um, they're, the, the two-footers and the four-footers in uh, six-packs are both ten bucks off. It's not a huge discount. Occasionally they get marked down better than that. But 10% off, and you can get them, and they work, and they're already probably the best value in grow lights that you can get your hands on. These lights, I started using them about two years ago, and I was immediately impressed, and I realized something, how far LED grow lights had come. You can buy lights like this right now from Barina and from other manufacturers that are about the same quality for about the same money. I think these are the best proven value that we've examined, but you can get other varieties that are okay, right? And that they do a really good job of. And these lights, you know, when you're looking at you can buy um, a, a six-pack of six-foot lights um, for 99 bucks, right? Six four-foot lights for $99 today. One of those lights, one, five years ago, was $100.
I mean, that, it, and it's not that, you know, that these guys reinvented the wheel or anything like that. That's just the entire industry has progressed that much as there's so much more indoor growing. Cannabis industry gets a lot of credit for that on volume as well, but there's so many more indoor farms, hydroponic farms, things like that using lights that the, the, the technology has progressed to what was cutting edge five years ago is a discount product today. And for what we do, it's damn good. And here's my thing about this. We're in an everything shortage right now. This is an investment. You get a set of grow lights and the stuff you need. You start your plants for your garden this year. If that's all you do, you don't even do any indoor growing, they're paid for. Every year after that, it's gravy. Now, you start doing a little bit of indoor growing, indoor hydroponics, etc. He starts producing dividends within months. That's investment thinking. And I think now is a good time to make that investment. But remember, whether you want grow lights or not, as long as you start your online shopping at tspaz.com, you help us out no matter what you buy. With that, I appreciate you guys joining us today. Remember, tomorrow we got Cat on talking about Anarchapoco. I just put out an article today with all the cool stuff that's going to be going on at the Anarchapoco Watch Party. Very small, exclusive event. Uh, if you want to be part of that, make sure you're on the Telegram channel And it's going to be 10 a.m. this Saturday. I'm going to drop a link in there. And typically with these events, it's a matter of minutes before all the tickets are gone. I think with it being February and kind of the way we're doing it a little bit different, it might not sell out uber fast, even though it's a small number. But I don't think you're going to be able to get it the next day. And I don't think you'll be able to get, to get it 30 minutes from... I would be ready to go because you never know how quick this stuff's going to go. With that, has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. You pull yourself up. They keep bringing you down. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? said you should have a house the American way a dollar down a dollar a month and you never have to pay there's a better way to do this let me show you a better way
Yeah.